0: Well, more cold open content.
1: Right
2: <laughs> I, I quit. I Every, Everything just I kind think, of has a dark edge. I think we're going to need to just reschedule at this point, guys. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and despite all my rage, I'm just another blonde in the bleachers.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I'm co-host Jeremy, and aside from also being a blonde in the bleachers next to my brother Sean, I thought I'd start a little... uh... A gentleman's group, like really kind of help dudes bond in like a a healthier way, maybe through farming on the prairie. I'm going to call it Gentlemen of the Prairie.
1: (laughs) Oh, I see. It's a play on Ladies of the, from the, of the Canyon, from the Canyon, what is that (laughs) album called? (laughs) Ladies of the Canyon.
4: It was yeah, just such one. a long way to get there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but now that we've all explained it, it's really good. Yeah, that
0: joke landed well. It did. It did land. I mean, I got it. I, I did get it, Jeremy.
3: <laughs> did you feel humor in you
0: after <laughs> getting it? <laughs> it was a, a little, little did chuckle. You,
3: did you recognize the
1: humorous elements of the words that he spoke?
0: <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. I appreciate that it wasn't even the (laughs) album we're here to talk about today, (laughs) but it was at least the right artist. I am co-host Peter Cook, and I just, I wanted to apologize to our listeners for lying to them at the beginning of season four. Oh. We named off all kinds of albums from 1972 because we began the season by featuring some albums from 1972. We named off a whole bunch of albums released that year and said we weren't going to be talking about any of those, but one of those albums we mentioned was Joni Mitchell, For the Roses.
3: and uh, Here we are. Here
0: we are today. Could, I guess we're just doing an extension of our 1972 season four opening.
3: Yeah. Thanks guest host Bob Bucko for turning us into liars. It's a good year. <laughs> 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 Welcome
0: back, Bob.
1: Oh, it's good to be back. It's good to be back, and it's good to be King. You are the guest on our number one most listened to episode of all time at this point. Say what? Yeah, the Isley Brothers. That's our best episode. Oh, it's a good album. It's a really good album. Check that episode out if you haven't heard it. Yeah, you can can hear
4: us talk about how good that album is. You can get
1: twice (laughs) as much Bob Bucko in your life. Everybody
3: could use a little more (laughs) Uncle Bobby. Bob, you want to remind people who you are in case they haven't listened already? Oh, yeah, yeah. That that whole, that whole thing that I have failed to do every single time
4: I've been on here. I am Bob Bucko Jr., and I make music, and I have a little record label that releases music, and I don't, I don't know what else to say.
0: What is the name of the label? Oh,
4: Personal Archives? There we go. Yeah. People can now track you down. Now find that. Hunt it down and send me money. (laughs) That was ominous. I I am only on this podcast as part of an elaborate marketing scheme. An MLM, possibly, if y'all want to get involved. Oh, I'm interested. Yeah, let's talk afterwards. (laughs) Okay, I have a brochure I'll show you. Yeah, yeah, uh, cool.
0: (laughs) Well, until we do that. What did you bring us to talk about it? We already said it, but why don't you introduce the record? Yeah.
4: The nineteen seventy-two album by Joni Mitchell for the
0: roses. Which this one this one comes between blue and court and spark,
4: right? Yeah. That's I feel like this is kind of like a lost transitional album in that era of her career because you know because blue is forever critically acclaimed you know rolling stone top 10 style thing yeah as is ladies of the canyon right before that right yeah so 70 into 71 and then court and spark was incredibly commercially successful maybe one of her most and also that's the one that really starts to accentuate accentuate the jazzier end of things And For the Roses really starts to hint at that coming in. Tom Scott's all over the album and uh, who's probably come up in like 10 episodes, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, we've talked about Tom Scott a few times.
4: Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. And it's also sentimentally kind of a special album to me because my parents didn't have a very large record collection when I was a kid, but they had some weird fucking choices for a really small collection. So like for Neil Young it was on the beach for for Todd Rundgren it was a wizard a true star interesting which you did on the show, um, the first Emmett Rhodes album which is on the show <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and and for Joni it was this one it's like did they only buy out of the ninety nine cent cutout rack there <laughs> you know like that bin because because are brilliant albums that didn't sell as well as they usually would have by that artist yeah
0: yeah. Turns out your parents were like the originators of this podcast concept. (laughs)
4: Proto-podcasters. Influencers. (laughs) But yeah, so this album is... Yeah, I've been hearing it since I was a little, little kid. And um, yeah, I, I can definitely thank my mom for turning me on to... I probably wouldn't play guitar the way I do without the knowledge of what she was doing with altered tunings on the guitar and things like that. So... Yeah, just uh, uh, someone who's musically been very inspiring to me, and I think this is kind of an album that's sometimes overlooked.
0: Well, where would we like to start for our listeners? What song will we play first? The second song on side one, Cold Blue Steel and Sweet Fire. Excellent choice. Let's do that.
2: Steal out of money when I for the people lose, sweetheart. Fire- we
4: You know, the song starts off with this kind of feel with, uh, you know, the tuned down to see acoustic guitar rhythmically played kind of, you know, okay, it's a folk song, right? And then partway through when all of a sudden you have uh, the soprano sax and a synth kind of come in, do a little squiggle, and this choir of voices comes out. And Tom Scott's just kind of doing this, like, just haunting soprano it sounds like it's being played like in a hallway kind of the kind of conjuring the elements of the song lyrically which are this is like one of the just the most cruelly honest songs about drug use like that's ever been made Specifically,
3: James Taylor's drug use. Yeah, Just was- like
4: John Denver, James fucking Taylor, like these squeaky clean image, you know. Uh, it blows the mind. It blows the mind.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it was his heroin addiction.
4: Yeah, yeah. And she was, you know, very baldly describing like how horrible that is for a person. And also coming at it, like a lot of this album does, Coming at these things, rock and roll, drug abuse, stuff like that, but through um, a woman's lens and their experiences, which aren't exactly the same, like Blonde in the Bleachers, which we'll probably come to later, really hits on this idea. You know, so I don't think, you know, like you have like Lou Reed singing heroin or something, you know, it's a first person thing. This is like, I'm watching you. You're doing this to yourself and to me. And then it's written so poetically that you can miss 90% of that being said, because she's just such a damn good writer. Yeah.
1: Yeah, like a, a lesser musician would have just turned it into like a PSA or that drugs are bad, but instead this is like a really personal y- Yeah,
4: yeah. It would have been the Save by the Bell episode where they smoked weed, you know? Yeah. Like <laughs> Yeah. Instead you get stuff like red water in the bathroom sink, fever in the scum brown bowl. You know, like it's almost passes you by, but then you realize what's being said there and it just it it's just haunting. You know, because she lived this, but it doesn't come off confessional the way so many folk writers do, because it is being written through such a poetic style that it transcends beyond this is a song about me or my life, which is, I guess, the core of all good art, right? So,
0: Yeah, that was something I noticed in listening to this album, which I've had this album for a few years. It'd been a while since I had listened to it, but I sat down listening to it with headphones on and had the gatefold open reading the lyrics along to it just to kind of absorb them and i was surprised at just how poetic they were even knowing you know her renown for songwriting it actually reading them listening to her i was very impressed with how much attention was given to them
3: yeah really gifted with imagery Yeah, she has a very dense approach to songwriting, I'd say. Like, there's so much packed Hmm. in, just line after line. And you kind of have to go, like, read the lyrics separately and, like, take your time to process what she's even saying because there's just so much crammed into this time of a song. Yeah, I agree completely. And in multiple
4: idea, like there seems to be this parallel thing. And this comes up again on, and I'll probably mispronounce it, but um, Hezira, a later 70s album of hers, where there's kind of these twin roads of home and family and music and fame. And a lot of the songs on this album, instead of being about one or the other, it's integrating both of these aspects of her life that she can't seem to ever make connect.
3: Yeah. And I found the, the name of this album for the roses has a similar quality of, you know, you just let it kind of flow by you and not think about it. But what that meant to her is like when horses, like win the race, they like throw the roses at them for, like, winning the race, which ah. she kind of envisioned as, like, you know, after Blue was a big success, you know, the critics are all throwing the roses at her, and yeah, the record label's like, wow, you're doing a great job, but then... Oh, the lyrics on that one are a great cut down to the industry, for sure. Yeah, but then when they're done with you, they take you out back and shoot you.
4: <laughs> Just like a horse, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, I mean, it's interesting because this is her first record with Asylum. So there's a lot riding on this for Geffen, I believe, at the time, right? Yeah. uh, Mm -hmm. So it is a different thing. Like, apparently, her idea for the album cover, which would have used her own art, was rejected because they wanted her photo on there. You know, they're trying to sell this product, and she's acutely aware that she's a product and she's being sold. And a lot of that comes out in the, this music is, it, it's weird. Cause it's, it's kind of like the kinks. It's like these people that are still in their fucking twenties probably. And they're having midlife identity crises already. And going into this like nostalgic look back at their youth. It's like, you're still young, <laughs> but they've achieved so much already that they're like weary about it or something.
0: I guess the image that she had painted For the album cover was supposed to to her it symbolized a like a critique or her feelings of the music industry Mm. and I believe that's in the what's in the gatefold of the record uh, that image is on the inside and I thought that was interesting that then they they, she's told oh no you got to put your face on the album cover (laughs) like right
3: (laughs) yeah I found. I actually didn't know much about Joni Mitchell before this episode. And the more I read about her, the more like kind of perplexing and really interesting character she is. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, it kind of felt like this story I've seen before of these artists who are like extremely introverted and kind of are like mining sort of the inner psyche for their lyrical content, which then makes people who relate to the music they create feel like intensely personal connection to it. Uh, So then you have this, you know, all these fans who feel like so connected to you, but you're, (laughs) you're just a human being Trying to exist in the world and especially a human being that's not into, you know, being around a bunch of other people. I don't know. It was,
4: no, that makes a lot of sense. Well, and particularly with the aspect, you know, because there are people that want to be famous, right? And Joni Mitchell always came across, whether it was like visual art or music, as someone who was doing this. And doing it on a level that was that you couldn't ignore. You couldn't ignore it because she didn't know people or because she was from Canada or because she was a woman or whatever other weird 60s Hollywood kind of rubric for getting success would be. It was just the sheer quality of what was going on demanded it. But then you have, like you said, like a person who doesn't want all the other shit that comes with it.
0: Yeah, she's not Lady Gaga where everything's about the fame. Quite the opposite. Yeah, that's, that's just
4: weird. To th- it's weird. To th- <laughs> no, it's weird to think about this. Someone in that position, because when you're talking that kind of money, you know, the kind of money that Geffen probably threw at her to sign her to this fledgling label, right? Like, wasn't like her and Judy Silver like the first two people he was working with, I believe. Correct. Yep. Like, I can see where that would be really messing with her head already. I don't know. It's st- like all three of, or, you know, like all four of us that here, we all create, you know, we make music. We don't have any context to see what it's like for somebody like that, though. It's, who's at that level. Like, that's a whole other weird trip. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's kind of, I guess I'll, I'll leave it at this. This kind of weariness about being famous is still something I'd rather hear than a Bob Seger song about being on tour.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Turn the page, Bob.
3: (laughs) It was also pretty interesting. David Geffen, in this fledgling label, was kind of putting pressure on Joni to create a hit song. Yeah. And the song (laughs) she made for him was called you turn me on I'm a radio.
2: <laughs>
3: and it was a, it was a hit. And it actually is <laughs> yeah. like a catchy song. Like,
4: yeah. Yeah, number 25 on Billboard. It's catchy but it's funny cuz it shows how out of place it is already in her creative lexicon. Cuz it's so much more straightforward. It's obviously pandering on some level. It's still a good song and really well written. But you can
0: see that she's walked away from that formula by now. Yeah, I was 16 or 17 when the Joni Mitchell hits compilation was released. And my mother purchased that and played it all the time in the house. That was my introduction to Joni Mitchell. And I remember even then, like, looking at the track listing and just even by the title, that one seemed to jump out as, like, a strange (laughs) song in her repertoire. (laughs)
4: I can't think of it off the top of my head, but yeah, there's definitely some great lyrical turns in that about the business end of things. Yeah. So she's sneaking, she's sneaking it in even to the thing that's supposed to be acquiescing to the demands, you know? Yeah. It's like
3: self-aware of what it is, which I find super interesting, but. And and it has some wicked harmonica on it. (laughs) Yeah. But we're not going to play that song. No. What song are we going to play next, Bob? Um, We'll go
4: with the song right after Cold Blue Steel and Sweet Fire, Bar and Grill.
0: Yeah. Bar and Grill. <laughs> One word, please. A little side A, track three.
2: Three waitresses all wearing black diamond deer. Talking about zombies and single porcelains No trouble in their faces, not one anxious voice None of the crazy you get from too much choice The thumb and the satchel are the rented Rolls Royce She knows something by the second we feel You think she's enlightened as she totals your bill You say, show me the way to bar and grill Well, some say it's in service, they say, humble makes pure You're hoping it's near folly, cause you're headed that way for sure have to laugh cause it's all so crazy All oh, her mind's on her boyfriend and it's over easy It's just a trick on you, her mirror's in your will So you ask the truck driver on the way to the deal, But he's just a slave He's got a lot of soul He sings Merry Christmas for you Just like Nat King Cole And he makes up his own tune Right on the spot about White balls and windshields And this job he's got And you wanna get moving And you wanna stay still But lost in the moment Some longing gets filled And you. Even
0: forget yeah, that one is very infectious. Yet it, it kind of gives me uh, this whole album, but that one in particular, maybe it's some almost like Van Morrison, Astral Weeks kind of vibes with that folk into jazz sound. I mean,
4: it's it's a little Ren Fair at the beginning, but <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, no, that that is yeah, or or even like moon dance because you know because it is pretty you know it is more in that pop lexicon Mm -hmm. on a song and that's why i feel like this is another like kind of more evidence of kind of the transitional nature like for this one the arc of the song the form of it is more traditional how she had been writing but musically what's going into it the chords the chord extensions, you know, it's leaning towards this jazz end again. All the different wins that Tom Scott's playing on it. And so it feels like it's kind of this hybrid of of what she, you know, eventually becomes, really.
0: Yeah. I think it's an important transitional record. And it is surprising that this one usually gets priced at, I don't know, 6 7 $8. A lot of her other stuff is... From right around this time is 10 15 20 I feel like
4: yeah, it seems like ladies of the canyon like like blue and earlier all seem like they've
0: gotten really expensive well, that's why we're talking about this one <laughs> <laughs> and, and because it can make it,
4: this fifth record expensive too by the time we're done with it <laughs> there you go but you know but it is every bit as good you know there's no slump here and um I mean like like having to pick four songs out of this
3: was really difficult for me. Yeah, I think you picked like maybe, maybe just one that I would have picked. And then, really uh, nice. Different. So, what's the alternate playlist here? Um, I would have done Banquet. Oh yeah, Cold Blue Steel and Sweet Fire for sure. Yeah, probably See You Sometime. Ooh, okay. Great. Or it would have been either that or Judgment of the Moon and Stars, which is probably my favorite one and then yeah I
4: mean talk about a way to end an album
3: yeah And <laughs> yeah, I mean that's putting it all out there yeah you turned me on I'm a radio I feel like I would have played just for showing the people that song but this is your ride Bob <laughs> we're on we're just alone
0: we're on the Bob Bucko Express here <laughs> honk honk oh wait <laughs> Well, yeah. so as far as talking about Joni's story, I mean, this seems like a long story to try to tell.
3: Yeah, there's no way we get through all of it. I'll mention some of the highlights, but as I learned while doing this research, there's tons of great interviews with Joni, and she's a confounding character that's pretty entertaining to
2: to watch <laughs> interviews of,
3: so... Uh, I'll I'll give kind of the broad strokes here, so you have, if you don't know at all, you'll have kind of a
0: general idea about Joni. Yeah, I mean I don't know. She's a figure who people know, but how much do they know about her?
3: <laughs> yeah, and I think people's view of who she is is just way out of whack. Actually, <laughs> once I learned myself that my view is way out of whack, but Joni Mitchell was actually born. Roberta Anderson, yeah, and Joni's the nickname. But born November seventh, nineteen forty-three, in Fort McLeod, Alberta, in Canada. But she mostly grew up in Saskatoon, in Saskatchewan, which, from my understanding of Canada, is kind of like the the Midwest or kind of out in the sticks.
4: Yeah, there's not.
3: Much out there. It's
4: crazy how those areas keep coming up in her songs, too. But yeah, it seems, you know, even to us just in America, that seems like an alien world, like rural
3: Saskatchewan. Yeah, it's just one of those fun words to say that you don't even think (laughs) is a real place. Saskatoon. That's the fun one.
4: They're both fun, Bob. (laughs) 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 Now, let's argue
1: this out. I want to hear more of this debate. (laughs)
0: Are we going to have to separate you boys? Yes. (laughs) Saskatoon, Saskatchewan.
3: (laughs) So, Joni's growing up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and at age nine contracts polio. And when I read that at first, I was like, wait, didn't they cure polio? And reading up on it. Not in
4: Saskatoon.
3: Well the vaccine came out 3 years later. Wow. So she was like, you know, in the last group of people. And
4: lingering lingering effects of that play a lot into her guitar style because it was kind of the need to do open tunings to get some of those chord voicings that her that she couldn't finger in the traditional way because of, you know, like after effects of having had polio.
3: Yeah, her fretting hand Was weakened and never really recovered fully. So that is what.
4: Yeah, so many things are just like single finger bar chords, just tuned so that she can get away with doing it that way. And as someone who's had like major hand surgery, like that was really inspirational to me to rethink the guitar.
3: Yeah, it was that sort of
4: forced innovation. And again, it shows like her tenacity. Like, I'm going to be, it's like, oh, I can hardly do this thing. Well, I'm going to find out a way to do it.
0: Yeah, like Django Reinhardt style.
3: Right. Yeah, as you mentioned, that carried on, and she also would just, like, have health issues through a lot of the rest of her life. You know, she kind of got in this pattern of, like, recording an album, going on tour, and then just, like, being wrecked physically from all that because that's hard on like any human being but right it would catch up with her and she'd have to go through these like long periods of just recovering and getting back to like a baseline so yeah she also i found this very funny watching all these interviews started smoking at age nine smoking cigarettes and that's
4: very canadian of her
3: Yeah, every interview I watched of her, even these like big TV interviews, she's like smoking the whole time during it, and I was like, "Wow, this lady smokes a lot." And one interview was talking to her biographer, who was like, "Yeah, she smokes like four packs a day," and this is in like the mid two thousands, and she also said that she said smoking is one of life's greatest pleasures. And said it never affected her voice, that that was just age that caused it to lower. I was going to
4: say that's like two octaves lower now.
3: <laughs> yeah. So that's... Well,
0: you call them as you see them sometimes, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Let that be a lesson to you kids. Take up smoking at the age of nine and you can become one of the most celebrated singers of the 20th century. <laughs> yeah. It's too late, though. The twentieth century's I'd over. I buy that for a dollar now, sponsored by Philip Morris.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, so she began learning guitar as a teen. As we mentioned, she uses a lot of alternate tunings to, yeah, be able to fret all those chords that she does. She started playing folk clubs around age eighteen. And then moved to Toronto at age 20 to pursue music more professionally. Not as like a got you, but like this turned out to be a pretty important fact of her life. It was at the same time that she found herself unexpectedly pregnant by her ex-boyfriend that was, you know, not her, might have been ex-husband it was like not a happy relationship. And she decided to give the child up for adoption. And this was like a secret she carried through a lot of her life and would allude to in songs throughout her career. And then some like old friend of hers like sold the story to the paparazzi in like the 90s. Oof. and. Created this whole sensation, but then she did end up actually finding her daughter and meeting her from there. But all of this is important because after she gave up her daughter is when she actually started writing music for the first time in her life. And I'm sure played a lot into this sort of like... I don't know, she seems very like shamanistic or sagely for someone of her age, like way advanced.
0: Mm. Yeah. It does feel like there's even in her early work, there's a whole lifetime of, of experiences that she's reflecting on.
3: Yeah. And just like a really earnest sort of like sorrow at times. And like this, just these raw emotional feelings that feel intense for someone that age,
0: which I think, yeah, I feel like sometimes her work can be so hyper specific even if it's a little cryptic i feel like some of that raw emotion probably based on some really specific experiences is maybe the reason that not everyone can connect with what she does yeah and it's it's powerful but it's also like kind of unique experiences so so i could see it they're not being an in for everybody
3: yeah yeah, it's unique experiences. It's presented very uniquely. I'd say when I was younger, I like was like, yeah, these songs are brilliant. I just like don't really like her voice. But I've gotten over all the pretty much everyone's voice at this point in my life.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> but like she sings in this way that's really unique, jumpy and like has a lot of like I presume it's like a jazz influence that drives a lot of these, like, she kind of has these big jumps. It's not really fluid melodies a lot.
0: Yeah, she has, her delivery can be kind of like a beatnik at times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just the, sort of that rambly, rhythmic way of delivering the her poetry.
3: Yeah.
4: Yeah, it's more, it's more syncopated than like a traditional 60s folky for sure.
0: Yes, and I've ne- I haven't really, I can't say off the top of my head that I've heard too many vocalists who I feel are directly inspired by her. I feel like it would be a hard thing to emulate.
3: Yeah.
4: I mean, I feel like she's trying to sound like a horn anyway. I'll, I feel like she, you know most of her singing sounds very much like a saxophone to me. Huh, I guess I've never
3: thought of it that way. That's interesting.
4: I, I really hear it in that kind of context, especially with like, When when she chooses to use vibrato and some of the kind of glissando stuff she does with her vocal, like you were mentioning, these kind of little leaps and stuff, and the vocal, I feel like she's always regarding it more as like an
0: instrument than a voice, you know. I suppose Annie DeFranco might have take a little inspiration from that.
3: Yeah, yeah, that would be
4: yeah. Yeah, it looks you know there's a lot of dynamic range, I can see that in both of them, where it's very that's very important to the delivery, especially when you and again this applies to both those artists, especially when you have a ton of freaking words. Yeah, you know the delivery is going to be really important, and you know yeah, like you said, you know how much she's packing in to this relatively narrow space, in both in terms of like words themselves and the meanings involved so yeah the delivery is kind of paramount for like what you're able to pull out on a listen as opposed to like you said when you're sitting there reading the lyrics on your like your 25th listen
0: yeah i definitely recommend uh reading along to the lyrics it definitely made me notice things that i hadn't before
4: yeah definitely well um like uh are we ready to listen to another song Yeah, we could listen to another song. Okay, because that kind of segued into my thoughts, like like the lyrics on uh, "Let the Wind Carry Me," which I I I think it's track five on Side A. Correct. Yes. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Great. (laughs) Just thinking about, um, you know, well, it kind of touches on a lot of biographical stuff in the lyrics, which she does, as we were talking about, quite a bit. Um, And it's kind of looking back on family and her parents and these different roles they're playing in her life. But then it also, like, focuses on present time, which is, you know, like, there's a line, like, I want to raise a child with somebody. And then, but, like, the song ends with, you know, I'm a wild seed, let the wind take me, or something like that. I'm paraphrasing, (laughs) because... I'm not a brilliant writer who wrote the damn song. <laughs> and it's this kind of like melancholy and this wistfulness that there's this thing I could have done. And I could have been like my mom. And maybe that's okay mixed with this, but this is who I am. And I have to suffer not having those things for what I'm doing, what I'm creating. So you have that going on at the same time as all the commercial stuff we were talking about earlier with the record labels and everything. And, you know, it just, you know, continues to contribute to kind of the complexity of what she's exploring on this album, which is also written, um, as we kind of touched on earlier while she's dating James Taylor before he's super famous. And while he's a terrible junkie. Yeah. So like, there's so much going on, you know, to process and, i guess this is how she's processing right is in songs just like you were saying you know get, you know starting to write music after giving up her child you know it's like this is always going to be the way to kind of explore and get it out and understand it apparently
3: very true well let's hear the song oh yeah let the <laughs> let the wind carry me side a track five really like the piano on that track well the piano on this album it's all her right yeah yeah and yeah it's reminds me a little of like neil young but it's like jazzier and more complex and interesting and
4: yeah well it's i i like how the the piano is so the core of the song and it is kind of so it's simultaneous to like really sparse like that but then you have these kind of choral vocals going on.
3: Yeah, those which, are cool. You
4: know, so, oh, well, and, I, and again, I guess it kind of speaks to that idea of her approaching her voice more instrumentally. You know, it's kind of like what they couldn't get the Brecker brothers in that day. So she decided to multi track real quick. Yeah, I, the, the piano is amazing on this album. Um, you're right. I. And it's things that are like easy to kind of lose track of and ignore unless you're really focusing on it. Um, And this song really allows you to hear what's going on in that piano line, you know?
0: Yeah, I'd say it's very much a headphone album, like a late-night headphone album.
3: Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Let's get the last of uh, the bio we're going to cover here because there's too much. In 1965... She follows Chuck Mitchell, who she got married to, from Toronto to Detroit, Michigan, where Chuck's from, and this is where Joni got the last name Mitchell as well. Uh huh. They were married for a couple years, got divorced, but she kept the name Mitchell, and then... Sounds better than Joni Anderson. It does. So she
0: moved... No offense to any Joni Andersons in our audience.
3: (laughs) (laughs) She then moves from Detroit to New York to really, you know, get at the core of American folk music. And is really only there pretty briefly before leaving out to California with David Crosby of the, I don't know if Crosby still, it would have been the birds at that point. And he digs what she's doing, and she leaves with him to California to become a Laurel Canyon hippie and is signed to Reprise Records where she releases her first album.
0: That's in 1968, I think. That's in
3: 1968 the album comes out, Song to a Seagull. As mentioned, she, you know, put out a handful of records pretty quickly in that era. Uh, Ladies of the Canyon was one of the big breakthrough ones. And then Blue became like critically acclaimed masterpiece. And then that brings us to For the Roses, her fifth studio album, 1972, which, as we mentioned, was it's kind of a breakup album a little bit or a few of the songs kind of reference James Taylor and their relationship, but it has also mentioned it, it covers a whole lot of ground and a whole lot of things. So, yeah, wow. And the players on this album are bonkers, as one might expect from, you know, someone who just had a hit album, uh, Graham Nash. Plays harmonica on a song, You Turn Me On, I'm a radio. Steven Stills uh, is credited with rock and roll band.
4: So I don't know if that has something to do with like the guitar solo at the end of Blonde and the Bleachers or something. Yeah, it's I was trying to the- I was trying to figure that out. Yeah, like, I don't fully what exactly understand. or is it just like a nod to him and the song had something to do with him inspiring guessing, it or something? Well, Who he's knows? a credited
3: player. He definitely played something on that song, but it's just credited okay. as rock and roll band. Yeah, because they're because during the fade out, there's some stuff going on.
0: But uh, I'm guessing they were on drugs and th- thought when they were coming up with the credits and thought that would sound funny, some inside joke. And now, 50 years later, we're overthinking
4: it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Russ Kunkel on drums. That's always
3: nice to have around. Yeah, big name, Wilton Felder from the Crusaders. From the Crusaders on the bass. Uh, as as was mentioned on the previous episode, Bobby Hall on percussion. <laughs> <laughs> we we did just talk
0: about her on Coke Escovedo.
3: Yeah. Sean made a game where he wanted us to name percussionists, and I couldn't think of one off the top of my head, and I used my notes for this episode (laughs) (laughs) to come up with a single percussionist.
1: I had looked up Bobby's uh, resume or album credits briefly before this, and she's like, Got an amazing roster of albums that she's on, but she's also just like one of the most I'd buy that for a dollar adjacent studio musicians I've ever seen. (laughs) There's like 15 plus artists we've covered before that she plays percussion on their record. And there's only one album to my knowledge that we've actually covered that she plays on previously. She's on one track on the Cheryl Lynn record. You're the one from Cheryl Lynn self-titled. But yeah, an amazing roster of albums that she's been on.
3: Are out as well as was mentioned a couple times in this episode. Tom Scott is playing some woodwinds for this thing. Bobby Notkoff contributes strings, and then James Burton does guitar for Cold Blue Steel and Sweet Fire.
4: Uh, I mean, really, it's a it's a pretty tight small band for an album. The you know for solo artist using studio musicians because i mean for most of it you have your three-piece rhythm section and tom scott and then Joni's doing the guitars and piano you know like other than you know those cameos and, and that's interesting to me you know it very much functions in a full band unit which i think also is moving away from the folk into the jazz and for her yeah that makes sense
1: uh, I also just want to point out that Bobby Knockoff, the violinist, had also recently played with Karen Dalton and Neil Young. Oh, wow. Ooh. Two of my favoriteists.
0: hmm Right around the yep. time of this release.
1: Well, he's on, everybody knows this is, Nowhere in 69 and then In My Own Time in 71. Wow. Oof. And also was a member of the electric flag before that.
0: <laughs> oh, that's a, yeah, i Sooner or later, we'll probably do the A Long Time Coming album by The Electric Flag. Oh, man. Yeah, that's an easy one to find for sure. I saw Buddy Miles live once. (laughs) He wasn't doing well at the time. Still, that's something.
4: It it was something. He kept pointing a drumstick in the air and saying, this is for Jimmy. I I kid you not. Whoa! It was like, quit milking the band, man.
3: (laughs) Whatever works. Hey, just get that electric flag episode off. Yeah. Yeah. So that's who played on this record. There's a whole, you know, rest of Joni's career that we don't really have time <laughs> to get into that took some wild turns on a few occasions. You know, prepping for this, I somehow just started watching and almost watched all of uh a live performance of Joni with Pat Metheny, Jocko Pistorius, and Michael Brecker. Oh yeah. And found myself really enjoying it. Yeah, I mean, those
1: are all great players.
4: <laughs> they are, but they're like names on uh they're like people I generally can't get with. Like Jocko. Yeah. I have a weird I play bass and I hate Jocko kind of stripe. You know, it's kind of like I, you know, I don't know. It's kind of like being a punk and hating a hippie, right? There's no real reason I have this antipathy, <laughs> but I have it. But when he's playing with Joni, like I, I was likening it to, it's like when Billie Holiday's with uh, Lester Young, like it's, he's a singer and a musician that are so complementary to each other. Mm. And so that era of her career, I find super interesting. Yeah, on, on multiple levels, including the sheer amount of cocaine they must all be doing at that point. But
0: uh, <laughs> they seem to be having a really good time. And she did an album with Charles Mingus.
3: Yeah. M- yeah, Mingus was in her touring band for a little while. That's nuts. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Mingus, I was told the story that uh, Mingus, like, did not sing previous to that. And Joni Mitchell was just like, Well, everybody in my band sings. So I hired you for my band. (laughs) Therefore, you now sing. Wow. He sang.
0: That's oh. you know, and knowing some of the stories I know about Charles Mingus, right? It's incredible that she told him how it was going to be. Yeah,
1: yeah. All the other stories are about Charles Mingus intimidating the hell out of people, right?
0: The
4: Suge Knight of uh, the jazz era, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah. So, super interesting character. Definitely read more about her. It's yeah. I don't I don't even know what to say cuz it's I'm confounded by it all. She like I noticed in interviews she really pushed against being identified with like the hippies and the 60s and talked about how like the free love thing was all bullshit and most of these hippies were just like virtue signaling and oh uh, she wasn't wrong. Yeah, and it was <laughs> Well, They're I think just... she really got burned by that
4: scene in a lot of ways. You, you know, I don't know. It's it's interesting. Like, I, I think there was a Rolling Stone thing in the '70s that did kind of like an itemized list of like different musicians she had slept with or something like that. Like, it was kind you know kind of portray, you know this kind of misogynist element to rock. And to the hippie thing that I think she was very react, you know, reacted against. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean, the, the these two words, David Crosby. <laughs> think of hanging out with that motherfucker all day long for a few years, and you're not going to think kindly of hippies.
0: <laughs> <laughs> R.I.P. <laughs> Yeah, that's that that anecdote of um about Terry Melcher who was a producer who worked with the Beach Boys and the Birds. He's the son of Doris Day and of course he later worked with Charles Manson some in a connection with Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys. And at some point he got asked by an interviewer who the most objectionable character he had ever met through the music industry was and he responded that would be david crosby
2: and the, the interviewer the
0: interviewer was kind of like oh i maybe i should have asked that question well who's the second most objectionable <laughs> who's the second most objectionable person you've ever met uh no uh, problem there charles manson
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh dear yeah so just a little insight into how people thought of crosby once again, all right. Take
1: that however you want to. <laughs> so uh Bob, maybe you know this. Is this the only record where Joni shows her butt on the inside of the album?
4: Um oh, I was gonna try to make like an OnlyFans joke, but I was still on the uptick <laughs> there. <laughs> so I guess we'll we'll just go with maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember maybe. like the
1: first time pricing one of these records and like opening up and inspecting be like, oh, well, I wasn't expecting that. Okay. Interesting choice, but still kind of a cool gatefold shot. She's like, you know, looking out at the ocean and the whole like water view and everything It's cool.
4: Maybe it's like, okay, well, they want my face on the cover. I'll put my ass on the inside.
1: Yeah. Like <laughs> it's all a statement.
0: I was thinking maybe, maybe it was her Herbie man tribute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this one's for Herbie. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Uh, Yeah, so we're not going to get into the rest of it for now because we don't have time, but maybe we'll do (laughs) a later Joni album later in the podcast. So for now, Sean, we turn to you. Oh, I guess I should mention Joni is still alive and just performed recently for the first time after she couldn't perform for about seven years because she had a brain aneurysm and has been recovering from that for a while and yeah performed just like Neil Young did that happen to Neil
1: Young I think Neil had an aneurysm too and then was out he was talking about it on the that Heart of Gold live DVD he did a few years back if I remember correctly
3: oh wow I didn't know that at all so yeah Joni's out there and still performing it was I watched the video of her doing both sides now from that performance, and it's extremely potent still. But now is the time where we turn to Sean and say, Sean, I really like this album. What are some other albums I should check out, Sean? It's funny you should ask.
1: I actually made a little list of three records. I mean, just for my own purposes, really,
3: but I guess I could share it with you if you want. I would appreciate you sharing this. Rare list of similar albums. All right, cool. Well, I was thinking
1: Ian Matthews, Tigers Will Survive, also from 1972, a previously featured artist who had a unique approach to folk music songwriting and is a guy you find in the dollar bins, highly underappreciated.
0: Yeah, he uh, covered Joni's Woodstock on one of the early Matthews Southern Comfort records.
1: Yeah. I feel like it would have been impossible to be a folk musician in the 70s and not be influenced by Joni Mitchell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's just got to be like one of the most common threads for that uh, world of music. I mean, everybody loves Joni. Second recommendation a previously featured album and one that is, again, a slightly non traditional take on folk music Chris Williamson, The Changer and the Changed. Yeah, one of the
3: Olivia Records. Records. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Great episode, great album. Because we yeah, talked about that one last season. And then my final recommendation, a person who, if
1: I remember right, was not only influenced by Joni, but was a friend and collaborator, talking about Jimmy Spheris and uh, <laughs> recommending his classic album, Isle of View, from nineteen seventy one. Not the uh, first recommendation, not the last. Our first episode
0: yeah, threw that it. in, threw that in for Jeremy because he loves when you recommend Jimmy Spierers.
3: Just for Jeremy, <laughs> yeah, that's got to be like the fifth or sixth time at least. Yeah, maybe even more.
1: Now that I know that you're like counting, I'm gonna do it more often. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I hope that you understand that this is the reality you've brought upon yourself.
3: Yeah. Maybe. Unfortunately, I only have ten fingers and
0: yeah i'm gonna run out pretty soon yeah
3: i'm not reaching down to my toes at my age
1: (laughs) you might hurt yourself that'd be dangerous yeah we need you in top physical condition have many more years of podcasting in front of you true
0: well thank you sean and bob it's now that time that we turn to you put the spotlight on you and ask if you have anything that you would like to plug for our listeners
4: I'm going to be on tour in March with uh, New Standards Men, a band out of Denver. They have an LP coming out, I think, by the summer that I play on.
0: Isn't our former guest Ike Turner also connected to that? I-
4: Ike played drums on the album, and he will be on this tour. And we will be playing in Kalamazoo, where uh, a few of you may be. Me and Peter. Listen to this fine podcast.
0: <laughs> awesome.
4: Yeah, and then I, I also played on an album uh, with my friend Sam Lockward and Mike Watt that'll be coming out this summer. So I'm really excited and honored to be part of that as well. Yeah. And um, otherwise, just kind of throwing stuff out there with the label, trying to get people to hear people that make really cool, weird noises.
1: And where can people find your label releases
4: and your own work as well? Epic Games subsidiary bandcamp.com is a a very useful tool (laughs) for me who is too lazy to register their own website. So you could look up personalarchives.bandcamp.com or bobbuckojr.bandcamp.com for my own wacky music.
0: Awesome.
1: And and if you see that Bob Bucko and the New Standards Men are coming to a town near you, Please go see him and mention the podcast. That would just be delightful.
3: (laughs) Tell him we sent you. (laughs) But whisper it. Sneak up behind him. See,
4: my plan's working already. (laughs) Yeah, you have to
3: whisper
1: it in his ear mid-set, though. That is the caveat. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, do we have any last thoughts on Joni Mitchell before we wrap up yet another episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar?
3: No, just get some headphones, bust out that lyric sheet, or open up that gatefold, follow along with the lyrics, and really just let it in, because it's just brilliant, frankly. Yeah,
0: I've found the more time I spend with this album, and I'm glad that we chose it, because I purchased it a few years ago, and listened to it a couple times, enjoyed it enough, but this... Prompted me to really focus on it, and yeah, there's a lot of little subtleties that come out of the arrangements and the songs. The more you pay attention, yeah. Well, very good. What are we leaving on? Is it our is it the song we've mentioned several times, "Blonde in the Bleachers"? (laughs) Uh, It is. It is a song
4: which came back to my attention after having heard this record a thousand times as like a toddler. When I had a seven inch uh, a Lou Barlow solo seven inch where he covered it when I was in high school, and that that's what got me listening to Joni Mitchell again. So thanks, Lou Barlow. Excellent. He probably listens to the podcast, I would imagine, right?
3: He, why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he? He has to now. We mentioned him.
4: <laughs> yeah, I, I bet he's googling his name right now to see where it shows up. <laughs> Any podcast mentioned me this week? That megalomaniacal <laughs> <I-acle> bastard.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful. Well, thanks for coming, Bob. Oh, it's nice to, uh, nice to talk to y'all again. Aw. All right, I'm co-host Jeremy.
4: I'm co-host Peter. I'm co-host Sean. And I can never remember if I'm supposed to say something here or not, so I'm guest Bob. <laughs>
2: She flips her hair for you Above the loudspeakers You start to fall She follows you home But you miss living alone You can still hear sweet mysteries Calling you The bands and the roadies Loving them and leaving them It's pleasure to try them It's trouble to keep them. Cause it seems like you've gotta give up such a piece of your soul when you give up the chase. Feeling it hard and cold, you're in rock and roll. It's the nature of the race. It's the unknown child, so sweet and wild. It's youth, it's too good to waste.